You don't listen to this podcast for financial advice, and today's episode isn't intended to give it. For that, talk to your own accountant or financial professional. That said, framing thinking about the economic reality is important for leaders during a crisis. On this Saturday cast, our own accountant on the mindsets that will help leaders make better decisions on the fiscal realities ahead. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 467. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Every leader in every organization is thinking about the financial and fiscal reality of responding to the COVID-19 crisis. And today, uh, we're going to take a bit of a dive into the financial and fiscal part of leadership so that we can be well-informed about how we respond as individual leaders, as organizations, and thinking about many of the things that have happened on a big picture level and how that really affects the strategy for each of our own organizations. I'm glad to welcome to the show today, Andrew Carroll. Andrew is a CPA and consultant who advises leaders and businesses on financial questions and change. He supports organizations in navigating taxes, investments, insurance, business strategy, operations, mergers and acquisitions, and accounting. And he is also our accountant and supports us with financial expertise to navigate decisions, which is how Andrew and I know each other. Andrew, so glad to have you on the show. So glad to be here. Well, I am so glad to talk to you. You and I talk often, of course, and Mm -hmm. normally we're not talking about things from a leadership standpoint. We're talking about just the money stuff and the fiscal management. And this is a time where we find the reality of leadership and fiscal management. Those intersections, of course, should always be there, but they're definitely there now. Absolutely. I know that you, because of your role, find yourself getting asked a lot of questions right now about how to handle certain situations. And I'm curious, you know, if you kind of put yourself in the role of advising some of these organizations as you do, what do you see people doing right now and business leaders doing that concern you or that if you could step in as CEO, you would you would maybe make right. a different choice looking at it from the, the fiscal management part? The same things you see in lots and lots of small businesses. A, people reacting emotionally. Professionals have emotions and professionals will react emotionally, but they learned they have learned and, and learned how to control those emotions and not let them guide their decisions. And so a lot of what you're seeing is people just flailing. And I get it, right? My income's gone. My business is shuttered. I don't know what's going on. My job is lost. That's all stuff that's cause for concern. But flailing doesn't help anything. And I I said this on Twitter today, you can either make good decisions or you can make fast decisions. You can very rarely make both of them. And so what I see people doing, the smart people, pause, take a breath, think about what's actually happening here and how this might play out and look beyond Friday, right? To what, what the future might look a month from now, plan for scenarios and what the future might look a year from now and how my business is going to need to respond to that and build up the systems around that as opposed to some people that are just, they're just throwing everything against the wall. I, mean, I can't tell the number of people I've seen that just go, oh, I'm applying for a, a loan for payroll and unemployment. I'm like, that's th- those two things are literally opposite. Like You can't do both. <laughs> like, What are you talking about? Because it doesn't make it, you're, you're not using any logic or thought process to approach that problem. Yeah. I'm curious about this point, especially. I mean, 
I think there's sort of the obvious thought of, okay, you know, a business who's that's well-prepared, has a reserve, has savings, all of those things. But I'm more curious about the mental model that you just articulated, the difference between a leader who is responding, you know, like you said, having that panicked feeling that all of yeah. us feel and that emotional feeling and the person who just jumps in and starts making lots of quick decisions, not necessarily thinking about the big picture. And the person who steps back and is feeling those same feelings, but is pausing and thinking about the bigger picture. What are the mental frameworks that you see those people doing better that's helping them to intervene a bit before they jump in and just start rashly doing things? A lot of these things are counterintuitive, just like the way you use debt, just the way you buy and sell investments, and just the way that leaders lead. Oftentimes, it's very, very counterintuitive to what humans' natural reaction is. The best leaders in my mind, when everybody's really calm, they're really, really agitated and they're out causing a ruckus because they're trying to break people out of complacency. And then the flip side of that is that when everyone else around them is losing their head, the best leaders are the ones who settle down and calm down and get really, really centered about what's going on. And that allows them to be rational. And so the mental frameworks all have to do with, I need to get facts. I need decisions. I need to do cost benefit analysis. I need to be making decisions based on rational information. Now, which is not to say that you're going to wait until you have all the information. <laughs> Leaders constantly have to make decisions with incomplete information. But how do I make that? It's not just, well, I don't know, so I can't make a decision. Well, you have to make a decision, but how do I weigh cost and benefit? How do I weigh risks? How do I weigh my hedges? How do I go, given the information I have right now, what is the best decision I can make? And if it turns out to be the wrong decision, what's going to be the consequence of that? I'm thinking through some of that stuff. So those mental frameworks, it's a lot of it has to do with getting your mind wrapped around what's actually going on and what's actually happening in the business and in the world and and getting as much information as you can and then striking that balance between how long do I wait gathering information before I make a decision? You know, there's because that, that trade-off. The longer I wait, the more decision, more information I have, great. But the longer I wait, the sometimes the less options I have. So I gotta find that happy medium about the first decision you have to make is how long am I going to wait to make a decision? And then <laughs> second decision is how much information can I get to make my said decision? There's a wonderful quote by Colin Powell that I'm not going to nail here perfectly because I don't have it in front of me, but it really reinforces what you just said of effective leaders wait for the amount of information to be between about 40 to 70%. And when you're in yeah. that zone, that's the time you need to make a decision. Because if you wait to 80 or 90%, yeah. you wait too long. And at the same time, you don't want to obviously just react and just have little information too. It can be a really strategic advantage for leaders to understand and be able to confidently make decisions in exactly like you said, in that 40 to 70% information range to be able to make the decision and move the team forward confidently. Because people, generally speaking, a lot of people want to follow someone. Even if they're not sure you're going the right direction, we got to go someplace. Someone's got to lead this, lead this thing. But if he's doing it, then let's, let's do it that way. Yeah, indeed. It's something our academy members hear from me all the time is the importance of movement. Generally speaking, you're better off, even if you make a bad decision, than just standing and doing nothing because yep. you learn something, you figure things out, you learn to apologize, all that stuff. Yep. So so this is good. Let's dive into some of the tactical things you're seeing and also some of the, the strategic thinking when you're helping people make decisions now. And I'm hoping that this will help folks to think about some of the decisions they're making around fiscal management. And one of the things that you've talked to me about is just understanding the shape of the economy. 
And yeah. one of the distinctions you've drawn is the difference between deferred demand and lost demand. Tell me about what you mean by that. Yeah. So businesses are very different and interesting creatures, and they're all driven by demand when demand is in you know supply and demand. And when you have the economy hit on pause, one of the big important things to understand, and one of the things we hope that policy leaders are taking into account is the difference between deferred demand and lost demand. Cars. Cars right now have like nobody's buying any cars right now. But people that need new cars probably or want new cars can afford new cars to a certain extent. They're going to go buy more. And so you're going to have a lot of what we what I would refer to as deferred demand. These are not academic or technical terms. These are just my terms, by the way. But which means you're going to have a bump in demand that will backfill some of the lost revenue and profits. Now, if we go into recession, these are multivariable equations, understand, right? It's not as simple as just, oh, well, nobody bought cars in March, so maybe in April they're going to buy more cars. Nobody bought them in April, so they'll buy more in May and it's going to, it'll, it'll be fine. It's not quite that simple because you're also going to have people who would have bought a car, but then they lost their job. And so you got to kind of understand that interplay there. And that could be lost demand. Lost demand, the perfect example I have is a restaurant, right? If people don't show up on Friday, I can't go out twice next Friday, right? If the restaurant was closed for a month, that is lost demand. You cannot replace it. It cannot get deferred to another time period. You're not just pre-filling. And, and that works the opposite direction, right? So if I'm Johnson & Johnson, I mean, we just, saw, we just started seeing earnings reports being released for stuff. Banks all got slaughtered because they set aside huge amounts for reserve for loan losses. Johnson & Johnson actually came out pretty good, right? Because they're selling a bunch of home goods and medical goods and things like that. But realizing that deferred demand cannot work the opposite direction. You don't go necessarily buy the Johnson Johnson stock because it's outperforming right now. Well, all you did was just yank future demand forward. Toilet paper is a perfect example. There's a finite amount of demand for toilet paper, and it's based upon bodily function. It's got nothing to do with how much you have in your house or not. So right now you can't get any, but the sales are going to drop off dramatically over the summer because everyone's going to be like, I already got all this toilet paper in my house, so I don't need to go buy more. And so you'll that will tend to equalize out. So really understanding what demand for your product or service is and how you think you know, people losing their jobs and economy. So, to, and, and the people that are going to be losing their job in the falling economy, are they the users of your products? So is that going to pull demand down? Are people, are you just deferring a demand that's going to get, you need to get ramped up for a really, really busy season later? Understanding how that dynamic is going to play out is key to understanding the moves I need to make now to how am I going to respond when things start moving again? Because they will start moving again. Yeah, and this gets back to what you said earlier of rather than just making decisions only emotionally and thinking about the moment, if you have a good sense, or at least you are thinking about, okay, is this deferred demand or is this lost demand for the business? And then how does that affect what I do today because of how that may play out four months, eight months, 12 months from now helps us hopefully to make better decisions then about what that future looks like. And then, of course, the decisions we're making today are going to better support that future, at least to the extent that we think it's going to look like. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And what you don't want to do is miss the boat, right? Is you, you just try to keep your lights on for the current and keep your current income going and you just cut everything to the bone. And then what happens is if you're, if you, and if you're, in a, if you're in a deferred demand business, things start picking up again. You turn your deferred demand into lost demand because you didn't have the staffing, the people, the resources, the inventory, whatever it is, to be able to support that really busy time when all that deferred demand got let out. And if you aren't there to service it, someone else is going to service it. And the tragic thing, I think, in a case like that would be not being prepared means you turned your deferred demand into lost demand. I want to ask you about debt. One yeah. of the principles 
that you preach is leverage is meant to protect, not save. Yeah. How does that play out right now with what you're seeing? It goes back to, so, and almost everybody knows this. This is true of stock markets and investors around the world, right? Everybody wants to buy when the market's booming. And as soon as it starts crashing, everybody wants to sell, which we all know and intuitively in our heads is the exact opposite thing you're supposed to be doing. What you're doing in that case is you're buying when it's high and you're selling when it's low. This is why people as a general rule, almost universally, people and retail investors underperform the stock market. It's true all over the place. You know, like Warren Buffett said, buy when everyone's afraid and sell when everyone's excited. Um, <laughs> it's a lot wealthier than all of us. Um, and it's because he does exactly that whole thing. Yeah. This goes back to the same rational thinking thing. And so what I, we try to tell people is leverage. People want to get debt. And, and I'll use the term debt and leverage. They're not technically the same thing, but use interchangeably for the moment. People want to use debt to save themselves from problems, to take the bottom out of the thing. And the problem becomes, you, that's not how it works. You're supposed to save. Debt will accelerate losses. Leverage accelerates losses and it accelerates gain. It's why you make more money in real estate because you can leverage the property up. And so what you're supposed to be doing is when the business is booming, that's when you go get a bunch of debt. You go leverage up your balance sheet and you bring a bunch of cash on board and you make investments and you build reserves. And then when the downturn comes, you can weather through it because you you leveraged yourself up and accelerated your losses on the upside. So when the downsides come, you can pull your own hedges to not have to go and make tough decisions. And it's the people that don't have to make those tough decisions because they have the reserves or who rocket out of the bottom. The same is true in stocks and other things like that. Money's not made on the upside, right? The protections are put on the upside. Money's made in the downside. If you're down 20% and I'm down 10, then when the return comes, I've got a head start. And most of the money gets made in stock markets and in business and things like that by whoever gets the head start coming out of the gate. That's where the real, real money's made. And you do that by using leverage the right way. This is the third major downturn I've been through since entering the professional workforce. And even though this one is different, well, they're all different, the patterns are so similar mm-hmm. and the lessons are so similar for all of us, contextually very different, of course. But And the speed at this one obviously is much faster than yeah. any of the ones have been before. We're, obvi- we're not talking about the health and the, all the, the sure. real suffering out there, obviously, in this conversation. But if we look at this purely of putting our business hat on, a lot of the decisions, a lot of lessons, the things are very similar to other de- economic downturns. And mm-hmm. so when I think about that, and I think about the, the leader who is the tendency for all of us, especially if we have fiscal responsibility over organizations, is to do the emotional thing, is to react and to not think as strategically and not do a lot of the things you know we've been talking about today. And I find myself doing that too. And yet, there are people that learn to set that aside and to make decisions that are a little bit more rational, as we were talking about earlier. I imagine you do see people who have made that transition, who have started off in a place where they are reacting emotionally and you know not making good decisions on spending and all the things, and they get to a place where they are doing that better. And for the person who is in struggle right now and wants to lay a better framework for the future, knowing this will happen again, knowing there's going to be difficult roads ahead, what do you see with the people who you work with as they start to learn that and they get better at that? What is it that gets them there? Where do they start? In a lot of cases, they start by gathering data, gathering real data. The ones that I 
my most successful businesses, I, I, I'm probably biased in this view a little bit because I am an accountant, but my most successful businesses, I don't struggle with them to get their tax return done because they don't know where their numbers are. Right? My most successful businesses also tend to have really easy tax returns because they already have all their books, financials, they know what they made, they know what they spent, they've been looking at it all the way along the time. The Venn diagram of people who are very successful and have no amount of accounting or financial information and don't take that information seriously is very, very, very small overlap, right? They, they tend to look at numbers and make basis. And if they don't have, which is not to say that you have to be an, an accounting expert, you know, don't overdo this. You know, don't let your bookkeepers go make 47 expense accounts to track every dollar. The point is not to track every dollar. It's to get, gain information. What's the relevant information I need to be making decisions, knowing what's the actual drivers of what's happening? And how do I track and monitor those things? They get in some of those information. They get in some of those numbers, and they they don't get bogged down in detail, but they find the relevant things and make sure they're watching and paying attention to it. And then they start looking ahead. They start they, they lift their eyes up. They lift their eyes to the horizon and look. What do I need to be doing? You know, a year from now, three years from now, my business is fine. Great. So what can I do to make it better? What can I do to improve it? What can I do to you know? What is my business model? They don't think about it in terms of just. How do we do this thing better or that thing better or whatever, you know? And then thinking industry wide, what does the industry need? How how am I reacting with not just my customers, but with potential customers or with my suppliers or with people in tangential industries or in related industries? Thinking about themselves, you know, the the, the bigger, the farther you go up the food chain, I say food chain, you say org chart, same thing. The farther you go up that, the broader your scope is, right? There's no CEO of Fortune 1000 companies that knows how much they spend on office expenses for the corporate headquarters because it's not a relevant factor in, in making the decisions that they need to make to move those things. And so the sooner you can move yourself up to making those big decisions, the better off you are. And then third, I would say, and then take risks. They go, well, I, I, can't, I can't focus. I'll focus on the long term once I get all this stuff done in front of me. Spoiler alert, you never get there. You'll never be done. There's yeah. always busy work to do. There's always something else that you can crunch on. There's always, there's always another Twitter feed to check. There's always another email to answer. There will never be an end to it. You could spend all day just answering emails and you feel like you've done good stuff. And you go, well, but I don't, I don't want to go do something that might not work because I've got stuff right in front of me. Right. That's called risk. And if you don't take the risk, you're never going to get the reward. So you have to go, well, I'm not going <laughs> to... I don't want to go out and launch a new product or do a partnership or move something bigger or make a big change to my business because it might not work. Okay, great. Then if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got, right? And so they take risks, calculated risks, numbers-based risks, but they are taking risks. And that's the only way you grow your income and your wealth and all that kind of stuff is by taking those risks. One of the things I'm hearing you say loud and clear there is if you're a leader, know your numbers. Yes. Whether you're in this financial organization or not, and of course, everyone knows the numbers today, but mm -hmm. the invitation here is know your numbers all the time. And if you know those key indicators, you're going to be able to make better decisions. And I'm, <laughs> and like you said, the Venn diagram, right? If the overlap, if you know that, and just as a starting point, you're already better off than a, yeah. a lot of business leaders are. The most successful people I know the most successful business people hyper-focused on their numbers, not all the numbers. You do not need to read a seven-page financial statement document. If you can't break your business down to, you should be able to break your business into three to five numbers, period. That's it. And those will tell you what's going on and what's good. And then they're hyper-focused on taking care of their people. 
if you are taking care of your people and you understand the numbers and you balance those two things, you will be successful. We have a lot of listeners all over the world and we do have a bunch of folks here in the States. And uh, you being an accountant here in the States, there are some specific things for American listeners that our government has done as far as responding to this crisis. And I think it would be a disservice if we didn't spend at least a few minutes looking at just some of the big things that are happening right now, because I know that people have heard all these terms about SBA and payable protection and all that. I'm wondering if you could frame some of the key things that we should know about, and especially if you're a business owner that you may want to be thinking about right now. And maybe we start with unemployment, which is the one that I think most people would know something about. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of stuff in all these different relief acts. The four major things are one, unemployment, right? So they've dramatically expanded unemployment. It's available for self-employed people, all that kind of stuff like that. And it's understanding though that the Fed is backing it, but they're still delivered by states. So you still have to go to your states to apply. And if you live in a state that isn't as large or doesn't have as robust a unemployment delivery system, you might be struggling to get through that stuff, but I think they will figure it out because it's still delivered by the Fed. But that is going to be your first short run my business is decimated. I don't have any reserves. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills either this month or next month. Unemployment is typically the way you're going to go. The next is the emergency sick pay and FMLA. FMLA stands for Family Medical Leave Act. And what they basically did was expand it out. And they said, hey, certain types of employers are required to give uh, sick pay and family medical leave and things like that. What they basically did was expand those programs and said, all employers are required to give two weeks, 80 hours of sick pay. But because we know that the businesses can't necessarily pay for that, we're going to give you a tax credit business owner. So that basically all you're doing is you're going to pay your people and then we're going to, the Fed is going to give you additional money to help cover those costs. And FMLA is a very similar thing. It's just the sick pay replies to basically everybody. And it's two weeks. FMLA is up to 10 weeks, but it's meant for families. So if you have children at home, you have to care for because schools are closed or whatever. They're the same mechanism, just different qualifications. Thank you for mentioning that because I totally missed this when all the information came out and I feel like I was watching it pretty closely. It Just was in the, the first bill. It wasn't in the CARES Act. That's why. It, yeah. was, in the, it, was, in the second, it was in the second coronavirus bill that got that was, that was only a couple billion dollars and it got trumped by, no pun intended, um, by the CARES Act, which came out a couple weeks later. So the emergency sick pay and FMLA stuff was one of the first things. It was in the FFA, the Families First Act, not the CARES Act. That's why a lot of people missed it. Yeah. Well, and I think that if you're a business owner and you haven't had conversations about that with your HR folks, with your accounting team, that's certainly a place to dive oh, God, in yes. on um, because well, that's a huge benefit to organizations. Mm-hmm. And what I try to make clear to people is that the sick pay is 80 hours Max, it's but you don't have to just put everybody on sick pay for two weeks and then bring everybody back again. A lot of what I'm seeing people do is going, listen, everyone's working remote, everyone's working from home, our volume is down. So what I'm doing is everyone's working at, say, whatever, 60% capacity. Great. So if I paid you for eight hours in a day as an employer, I paid my employees eight hours in a day, I'm going to say, listen, I only have two thirds of my revenue. So I can only afford to pay you for five or six hours for the day. But the Sick Pay Act allows me to layer in a couple more hours of pay, which basically means you, the employee, still get your full pay and the government's going to subsidize a little bit of it until we get back up to full capacity again. And so me, the business owner, can keep my employees intact and keep them at full pay even though my business is down and they've got a little bit of subsidy that can go through there. So you can you can stretch those hours out for, as far as I know, I think it's the whole year. You can, you can use all 80 of those hours over the course of this whole year if you want to just give someone a Friday off or give afternoons. And so much, much more common I'm seeing is, like I said, people doing two hours a day of you know sick pay and six hours a day of regular pay to reflect the fact that everyone's working at 75% capacity. Okay. So 
unemployment first area, emergency sick pay, and FMLA second area. What's the third? What we refer to as the EIDL and the SBA. So EIDL refers to the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. So this is the thing that the the SBA has had this forever and ever and ever, which is the anytime you hear about someone, especially in America, they go, oh, the president has declared this a disaster area or the governor has declared this a disaster area. It always seems a little like, well, duh, they just got hit by a hurricane or a tornado. Like obviously it's a disaster area. The reason they're doing that is because there has been for a long, long time, the SBA runs a program that says if you are in a federally declared or state declared disaster area, you can apply for economic injury disaster loans. And they basically just declared, I think I think at this point, they've declared almost the entire country a disaster zone. And the idea is that those are loans you can get directly from the SBA that basically fill lost revenue. This is also the loan, if you've heard about the $10,000 grant, it's not a $10,000 grant at all. But what happened was they said, hey, listen, because we're going to need time to process these loans, people need money now. When you apply for the loan, you can apply for up to as a key phrase there, folks, up to $10,000 advance on the loan. And then what they said was, if you apply for a loan and you get an advance and are subsequently declined for a loan, they will not make you pay back the advance. So that whole mechanism of, hey, you're going to apply for a loan and we might give you an advance on the loan. And if you don't then get the loan, you turns into a grant. Somehow everyone took that as, I will fill this application out and I get a free $10,000. It's not at all how that works. But understand that EIDL loans are backed by the SBA and they are a normally underwritten loan. What does that mean? What that means is it's based upon ability to repay and your balance sheet. So perfect example, if you have no money and your business is decimated, you're probably not going to get an EIDL loan. You might get a little bit of an advance, but that's you're not going to get much. The idea behind EIDL loans, and this is part of the understanding of think through this stuff rationally, what they're supposed to do is go, hey, listen, what the SBA really wants to do with an economic injury disaster loan is to say, listen, if a business takes a 60-day hit that is 100%, a lot of businesses can't survive that. But if I take that hit and say it's, you know, whatever lost profit is $40,000. I can't afford a $40,000 hit over 60 days. But the SBA says, "Hey, we'll loan you 40 grand and then you can pay it back over 2 or 3 years." What they're not doing is subsidizing you. What they're doing is allowing you to stretch a very short-term hit. You're still going to take the hit but you can stretch it over a longer time period, which means you can absorb it into your normal business and not have it be, you know, instead of a $40,000 hit once, which would take down a lot of people, it's a small hit each month, which most good businesses can then take. That's what it's designed for. But still a loan you're going to pay back as a business, just that you're going to weather it over time versus weathering it all in that short period of time. So that makes sense. The first EIDL loans that we applied for were back in the first week or two of March, and we've heard zero response from any of them. I think you're not going to see EIDL loans come out until Q3 and Q4 when they can go back and go, okay, how much was your damage and how much did you recover? And now that we know what your trajectory is, we understand you can repay the loan. You you might then get a loan from them, but I wouldn't expect that to be a short-term thing. Use it for what it's supposed to be for. And the fourth, yeah, one fourth one is, this is new as far as I know. The other three oh, yeah. are existing programs, although obviously there's different applications in the, this moment. Payroll protection plan, it's called? Yep. Uh, paycheck protection loans. PPP loans. Basically what it says is, if you are still in business or you don't have a lot of work to do or because you were ordered to shut down, what they're basically going to do is say, hey, listen, we're going to go look at your historical payroll. We're going to figure out two and a half times your average monthly payroll. We're going to give you a loan for that amount. As long as you don't reduce headcount, don't reduce pay, I'm painting this with very broad strokes, folks. There's a lot of caveats in some of this stuff. But generally speaking, as long as you don't reduce headcount, don't reduce pay rates, and you keep your people employed, and you use that loan money to 
subsidized in the eight weeks after you get the loan, if you use that money to pay for payroll, paychecks, they'll forgive the loan. Basically, the government's saying, we're going to cover eight weeks of payroll for employees. And so generally speaking, strategically, if you're a self-employed person or a business owner and you're just decimated, unemployment's your first go-to. And then you can try to go PPP. And if you can get that funding, you can bring them back. Understand that the PPP is based on the eight weeks post you getting the loan, which means you need to have a relatively short runway. And this goes back to our, you got to think ahead type stuff because you've got a relatively short runway. If you think you've got a short-term hit, meaning less than two months, then this is going to be the time when you're going to, you can use a PPP loan. Great. I can cover payroll for this couple of time period. And if I think I'm going to come out of this, my revenue is going to recover, then no problem. I kept my people intact, paid them off this loan, the loan gets forgiven, and then I'm back to business. Because, and I can jump on, thinking in terms of hedges, I can jump on this recovery because I've got my whole team here ready to go. And if you're just struggling, like, listen, I'm going to make it, but I'm struggling, use the PPP, layer in some sick leave to help get a little subsidy on that payroll, or just wait until you get further out and use the EIDL loans in Q3 or Q4 to go and pick up some additional, um, to help stretch out whatever hit you took. Yeah. Thank you so much for this overview. I There's obviously a lot of details in all these. Just knowing- yeah, your, your mileage may vary. Yeah. Well, and just knowing, <laughs> just knowing the big picture here is sure. really helpful because obviously we're not giving you financial advice or accounting right. advice. This is just general information. So these are the questions you should then go and ask your accountant, ask your financial team saying, hey, I know these four programs exist in this situation. Thinking about what we said earlier in the conversation, what's the long-term picture? What's the strategy for our business? What does the demand look like for us? What of these programs make sense for us to look at and investigate that would potentially be not only beneficial to us, but are going to help support the broader economy as well too? And so that's a really good starting point for asking these questions. By the way, for folks who want to get more detail on this, Andrew, they can also go over to your website. And I know you'll have some things posted as well as far as information on this, correct? Yeah, I'm going to I've got a, a longer narrative guide you can get as a download that I'm giving away to people. You can get on my website, cfoandrew.com, or you can just come hit me there and ask questions if you want. Perfect. All right. So we're going to link up all that in this week's weekly leadership guide and the episode notes, of course. Andrew Carroll, thank you so much for your work, your support of us, and helping us frame some of the thinking and strategies around the fiscal response. I so appreciate it. My pleasure. As I mentioned on the opening of the show, we're obviously not a finance podcast, uh, yet we have tackled many finance and budgeting topics over the years that would be useful for leaders. If this conversation was helpful to you, I'd recommend several other related episodes. One of them is episode 244, Improve Your Financial Intelligence with Joe Knight. Joe is the co-author of a series of books called Financial Intelligence, and there are a number of different versions of the book for different kinds of professionals. He was on episode 244, teaching us some of the key terminology and strategy behind finance and numbers. It is probably the best resource I know of for almost anyone to get a good overview of some of the key financial terminology that many organizations use and just knowing some of the key numbers. If you, like me, have found yourself sometimes feeling inadequate about how to utilize financial terminology well and what people are saying in those finance meetings, episode 244 is a really good starting point for you. Also useful on especially organizational budgeting is episode 355, How to Approach Corporate Budgeting. My guest on that episode was Jody Wadrich. He talked in detail about how he as a leader approaches 
the budgeting process with his team. Lots of useful and practical mindsets when you are putting together a budget. And of course, in this new reality, many of us are rethinking what budgets look like going forward. Episode 355 is a good place to start for that. On the personal finance side, I'd recommend two past episodes as well. Episode 356, Four Rules to Get Control of Your Money. My guest on that episode was Jesse Meekham. He is the founder of the service YNAB, You Need a Budget. It is the personal finance software Bonnie and I use for all of our personal finance we have for years. It is fabulous. It is a wonderful tool if you're looking for one to get control of your own personal finances. Episode 356 is a wonderful overview, not only to the software, but more importantly, the model and philosophy behind it, whether you use the software or not. So many of the rules of YNAB would be useful to almost everybody. Episode 356 is where to go for that. And then finally, my pal Jill Schlesinger has been on the show a couple of times, most recently on episode 396, Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. And we reviewed some of the lessons from her most recent book and all of the things that really we should be keeping in mind as, you know, we like to think of ourselves, I think, as smart people, most of us, and yet we don't always make the best choices with our money. And in episode 396, Jill reviewed some of those key strategies and of course, some of the mistakes as well too. Also a note, Jill is the host of the podcast, Jill on Money. She right now is doing a series of episodes daily and responding to questions from people who are wondering about investments, personal finance, how to handle that in the midst of the crisis. It's fabulous. She's extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for a resource for how to answer some of the personal finance questions and investment questions you may be having right now in the midst of this, Jill on Money is a wonderful podcast to be listening to. And thanks, Jill, for all the work that you're doing on that. All of those can be found on the coachingforleaders.com website. And one of the areas that we have tagged on the website is finance and budgets. When you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, you will find the episode library, that topic, finance and budgets, COVID-19 is there, as well as several dozen other topic areas cataloging every expert appearance since 2011. Once you register for your free membership, you'll also get access to my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday. I'm pulling the best resources, articles, news, other episodes from other folks' podcasts that I think will be useful to you to be listening to and reading and knowing about so you can pass along to others and continue to support your own leadership development. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go for all of that. I will see you back on this coming Monday for our next Q&A episode with with Bonnie on the first Monday of the month here. Have a great weekend and see you back Monday. Take care.